0: The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English, Justin Jackson, picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N E W C O U R S E. Hillsdale.edu slash new course.
1: Welcome to the Hillsdale College K 12 Classical Education Podcast, bringing you insight into classical education and its unique emphasis on human virtue and moral character, responsible citizenship, content rich curricula, and teacher led classrooms. Now your host, Scott Bertram. Thanks for listening. The Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education Podcast is part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. You also can find more information on topics and ideas discussed on this show at our website, K12.hillsdale.edu. We continue a series of episodes from presentations delivered at the Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence seminar on the art of teaching children's literature. The Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence is an outreach of the Hillsdale College K-12 Education Office. It offers seminars in classical academics and pedagogy for teachers nationwide of any background. Seminars are led by the faculty, leadership, and master teachers of Hillsdale College. There is no cost to attend, and attendees may earn professional development credits. Currently, the Hoagland Center is hosting a series of events on the art of teaching. On February 29th and March 1st in Grand Rapids, Michigan, it's the art of teaching, the sciences. And on April 11th and 12th of 2024 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, it's the art of teaching, American history. To learn more and register, please visit the webpage for the Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence at k 12 Hillsdale.edu. Look for the events tab and Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence. Or write to CTE at hillsdale.edu. Today we continue a lecture from September of 2023 delivered by Dr. Benjamin Beyer, Associate Professor of Education at Hillsdale College. He spoke to a gathering of teachers and school leaders in an address titled From Nursery Rhymes to Ever After: Some good Books for Children and the Childlike. We continue with Dr. Byer now.
2: Marks of a classic of children's literature, highest order, enjoyed, enjoyed by adults and kids, and not moralizing if instructive and wisdom-bearing. Plato says the beginning is the most important part. Well, what's the beginning of classic children's literature, at least with respect to what it, what, what children receive first in time? Well, the nursery rhyme is the first thing, right? Before... Frog and Toad, before fairy tales, before fables, right? The Nurs- nursery, nursery rhyme is of the nursery, it's, it's the first. So if Socrates is right, that the beginning is most important, well, of that which is at the beginning, the nursery rhyme is first and therefore most important, maybe. What, what is a nursery rhyme? Well, it's really hard to define and so let's not define it, at least for a while, and instead look to what G.K. Chesterton observes in orthodoxy. He says there, and this is on your handout, a child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon. But a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. This proves that even nursery tales only echo an almost prenatal leap of interest and amazement. These tales for a children of seven say that apples were golden, only to refresh the forgotten moment when we found that they were green they make rivers one run, run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water so there's a a relationship between the fairy tale and the nursery rhyme the nursery rhyme does something more more basic more fundamental it's hard to define nursery rhymes because they're so various you know it's it's such a a mixed bag, you've got mnemonic poems, and tongue twisters, and songs, and rhymes, and limericks, limericks and riddles, and puzzles, you know, what, what, what can we sort of say to hold all these things together? The Oxford Companion to Children's Literature simply says, verses or chants, spoken or sung by adults to children. So, okay, <laughs> got it. That, that's, that's a pretty, pretty widely cast net that I think does capture all, all nursery rhymes, but Nursery rhymes are a really interesting phenomenon. They seem to have risen up in cultures that weren't aware of one another long ago. There's evidence of nursery rhymes in ancient China and ancient Rome. Uh, you can catch that, for instance, in the the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus talks about children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, or maybe you know Augustine's Confessions and the the great sort of hinge moment, the the moment of metanoia, of turning, of conversion for Augustine as he's sitting in the garden, and these annoying kids are kind of like chanting songs, calling to each other, jumping rope or something, and somehow kind of through that cacophony of the distant nursery rhyme comes this command to Augustine, take and read, uh, which is what I was suggesting, sort of the hinge of his whole life. Anyhow, right, so like, nursery rhymes have been around and we see them pop up in funny little places uh in history like in augustine's confessions and so across time across across space they are and they're an oral tradition so it seems that parents tell rhymes to their kids and the kids have it so stamped in them that then the kids repeat those rhymes to their kids, and on and on it goes to the year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, how it started, not quite so sure, but it seems that it's this more or less oral tradition, of course, right, books of nursery rhymes exist, I own many, uh, but, but that, it seems that in the sort of long view, it's mostly an oral tradition that's accumulative, that sort of somehow somebody creates a new little ditty And it takes off. Somebody coins, Mary had a little lamb. And then all of a sudden, it's part of this body of verses that we call call nursery rhymes. I think, though, that we are especially blessed here in the English-speaking world to have this delightful tale, this lovely conceit, this myth that the author of nursery rhymes is Mother Goose. (laughs) Because nursery rhymes are so interpersonal, right? That sort of generational exchange that I was describing, parents to to kids, teachers to students who become parents and teachers themselves to the new kids and students, and on and on it goes. There's such a relational, humane, standing toward each other in the nursery rhyme. How great that it's not just, this accumulative body of oral wisdom that marches along and said, Mother Goose, of course, is the author of nursery rhymes. And she's this, this, this figure who is, is wise and mysterious and, and unknowing, who, who is she? Well, let me share some of the mythology because it's so great, right? So some wish to argue, probably people who you know, are, are Americans, which are well, Mother Goose. We, we've got a gravestone in Boston from 1830 with somebody named Mary Goose, and it seems that maybe she wrote some nursery rhymes and, and published them. And that seems totally unlikely to me. But you know, if you want to advocate you know, with a certain patriotism for your country, that's that's fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> rather, it seems that this high idea of Mother Goose as the authoress, the 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 creator of of nursery rhymes, goes back to. German and French traditions where you've got the bird lady, you know, the, like the, the crazy peasant lady who feeds the geese, kind of, you know, a, a liminal figure who's kind of on the outskirts of town, sort of like of, of in the town, but not of the town. And the children are always, it seems, attracted to this sort of person who right, is either really creepy and deformative or is sort of wise and gives children what parents would hope the children would get, but from outside the family. Right? Like what a blessing to sort of receive this reinforcement of what you're receiving inside your family right? from your teacher at school, from the crazy lazy on the outskirts of town feeding the geese. Right? Uh, so the 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 goose woman who the children gather around and she tells them. Rhyme. She tells them stories, and they're just drinking it in. They they love it, and this seems to be a a convention, a technique, a conceit across literature. You know, sort of Uncle Remus sort of is in a similar kind of space to to Mother Goose or uh, Mary Poppins, or you know, so, so kind of a, a repeated type or or convention. So so Mother Goose is is this, and. I think we're liable to, oh, you know, it's just child's play. She's just crazy. But what I wish to actually suggest is, Mother Goose is a sage. Mo- Mother Goose is a poet philosopher of the highest order, uh, which maybe is a surprising and untrue. Uh, maybe strikes you as untrue. Uh, but but I really think think it is the case that she is giving of of wisdom to the young. And that's already kind of picked up on in the the Chesterton quote from a moment ago. But look there at the bottom of the, the handout, this lovely little moment in an 1833 edition of Mother Goose. So this is in the voice of Mother Goose responding to critics, right? responding to those who say, oh, this is just child's play. She says, fudge. I tell you that all their batterings, all their arguments against me, can't deface my beauties, nor their wise prattings equal my wiser prattlings. The quotation actually goes on. And all imitators of my refreshing songs might as well write a new Billy Shakespeare as another Mother Goose. We two great poets, Mother Goose and Shakespeare, we two great poets were born together and we shall go out together no, no, my melodies will never die while nurses sing or babies cry, right? But you laugh like you're suspicious. You laugh like you don't buy it. But I think it really is true of nursery rhymes, really true of the, the body of work produced by Mother Goose that it has this, right? She deserves to be spoken of in the same breath as Shakespeare. These are, you know, delightful and instructive ditties and so now I want to spend the, the rest of the time actually trying to show how that's the case, that these, re- these rhymes really are deep and profound, not, right, not junk but good, you might, you might say. Uh, but one sort of maybe preliminary remark before I do that for the rest of the time. I am admittedly right going to start to analyze verses, analyze poems and pick them apart to kind of you know here, here's here's the wisdom, and that is reductive of the whole beauty and goodness and force of the artifact right so so to to prove to you skeptics that mother Goose is wise I have to to kind of De- deface her, her works, where we won't be able to account for all their complexity. That it has this wise idea and this poetic form and this meter and this memorable thing, and creates this image and uses this metaphor. That that's all sort of helpful, but also, I mean, Flannery O'Connor says, a story is a way to say something that can't be said another way. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. I think that's true of the nursery rhyme, right? You tell the nursery rhyme because it can't be said another way. So all of these words, right, I'm, I'm deigning to destroy the integrity of Mother Goose to persuade you that she's as awesome as I'm saying. So let's, let's do that. We could talk about her rhymes in a number of different ways. The first way that I, I wish to, to speak about them is with respect to wonder. Uh, I don't want to belabor what wonder is, since Professor Gregg already spent a good deal of time last night talking to you about wonder. So you can see there on the handout, I also, right, not knowing what Professor Gregg was going to do, quote Plato's Theotetus. Uh, and then quote a passage from Aristotle's Metaphysics, where we're told that wonder is the, the passion in which we realize, right, the emotion in which we realize that we're ignorant, but it sort of fuels us to want to understand more and further. Interestingly, in the Aristotle quote that I said I wasn't going to read or talk about, that I'm now talking about, interesting in the, in the Aristotle quote, he points to, we wonder at the moon, the sun, the stars. We wonder at, at myths, which the, the Greek there is simply uh, mythos, which we might translate as story. Right? So, so we, we wonder both at the natural world and at good stories that somehow represent facets of the world to to us. And so Mother Goose, I think, right, does a lot with wonder. First of all, I think her, her ditties sometimes express wonder. How great is that? You know, the child, as Chesterton notes, is always wondering. Like, the fact that there's a door there. I've never seen a door, right? I'm new to this world. Oh, it's on a hinge. It moves, right? This is extraordinary. So... Part of what Mother Goose can can provide is giving voice to that passion of wonder that the child has and feels but can't quite articulate. So sometimes Mother Goose is is speaking what it is like to experience wonder, and also at other moments, or maybe at the same moment but in a different way, I think she's stirring up our wonder, encouraging our wonder, especially if we have lost the ability to see how wonderful the technology of the hinged door is, right? just think about that for a second, right? Could you build your own hinged door right now? Think of when that first came to be. It's a pretty marvelous thing. So here, a number of different rhymes that we could look to, but maybe the one rhyme to rule them all in the Mother Goose canon is Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. You know, depending on what age of student you're instructing, you know, you've got sophomores, juniors in high school. They, they come into the room on the first day of class and you say, class, we're going to go around the room and each of you are going to recite a poem, you know, by heart. And depending on what kind of school you have, right, none of them have any poems by heart and they look terrified. You go, OK, Johnny, can you do it? No. OK, Susie, can you do it? No. OK, no, no one can do it. And then you ceremoniously sort of, okay, class, let me begin. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Right. So everybody, of course, knows knows this, but in terms of it, sort of giving voice to wonder or encouraging us to wonder. I mean, here we even get the word wonder. We're sort of telling, right? We look up at the stars. It's sort of giving us a posture, giving us an orientation as readers. We look up at the stars, and in their twinkling, we're stirred with, with wonder. We, we marvel. We're in awe. We feel humble. And note here, really important detail, sometimes lost in oral tradition, it's an exclamation point, not a question mark, right? How I wonder what you are, right? It's, it's, a, it's an exclamation, not a I wonder what you are. I bet we could figure it out, give voice to it, and wonder no more, right? No, that's not it. Sort of like, the more you learn about the stars, right, like, flaming balls of gas, not the end of the story. The more you learn, the more you collect, the different ways you look at it, the more wonderful it it becomes. It's a, it's exclamatory. In the, the Renaissance period, the piece of punctuation there, uh, the exclamation point, was called the point of admiration. The Latin word for wonder is admiratio. And so, right, even the, the punctuation is encouraging our our wonder so so this is clearly giving us an example of how we might wonder or giving voice to to wonder and i love that it's in the first person mother goose does this quite a lot you know how i wonder so when the child is saying it or when you're saying it to the to the student you're you're immediately drawn in to the actual activity that's right Hey, you over there, you once were wondering up at the stars, right? When you use that first person singular, you're already inhabiting the space of wondering. You're sort of practicing wondering, even if you're not a person given to to wonder, who needs to be reawoken to to wonder. But, right, the heavens, you know, the landscape with mountains, these things that make us feel small uh, and have done so. For as long as people have been around, you know, sure, those are our wonders. And maybe, right, even those of us who have grown kind of callous and blind to the wonders around us, okay, we finally, you know, get to that place in the Alps where there's no light pollution, we see the heavens, we can't help but be stirred. These are extraordinary marvels. But Professor Gregg's point last night, you know, but there's marvels in your backyard. Chesterson's point, there's There's marvels in the larder. There's marvels in the kitchen. So here, notice the other sorts of things on the page. Maybe it's simply the daffodil. And I think one of the great services of the poet, by the way, be it Mother Goose or Billy Shakespeare or whomever, one of the great services of the poet is it can isolate a thing. Part of the reason that we fail to wonder is the very superabundance of phenomena. Right? There, there's so much that we can be overwhelmed, and if we're uncomfortable with that, we kind of tur- turn an eye from that, that mysterious overwhelm. But the poet can sort of see with some sort of clarity and communicate, like, let's look just at the daffodil, right? Just at the flower in the crannied wall to think of a little Tennyson verse wherein the, the, the poet there, you know, How, if I could understand what you are, root and all, all in all the flower, uh, I would understand what God and man is. I focus on this one teeny little flower, and that sort of wondering about that one thing can lead you back into the everything, into the superabundance. Mother Goose, great at isolating things for us. Just to the right of that, if all the seas were one sea, I mean, you've had this student, right? You say something, and the student's wonder carries him or her away, right? Today, class, we're going to talk about the sea, the ocean, well, what if the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean were one ocean? And to, I mean, the fact that Mother Goose can sort of anticipate that, give voice to that with this sort of uh, wondering at something so big, so vast, is, is a lot of fun and delightful. But then part of Chesterton's point, which I think is quite right, is Mother Goose is the poet of the everyday, of the quotidian. Right? helps us not just see the stars, the heavens, the flowers, but the bread and cheese upon the shelf helps us see hot boiled beans. Who knew that that was, was wonderful? Or the fact that it's, it's pancake day. So many different ways in which our wonder can be expressed and or stirred by, by Mother Goose. And I think she's sometimes at her best when reawaking us to everyday wonders that we're most liable to miss.
1: That's Dr. Benjamin Beyer, Associate Professor of Education at Hillsdale College, and his lecture, From Nursery Rhymes to Ever After, Some Good Books for Children and the Childlike. Remember to learn more about the Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence, and to register, please visit the webpage at k12.hillsdale.edu and look at the Events tab for Hoagland Center, or write to cte at hillsdale.edu. I'm Scott Bertram. We invite you to like us on Facebook. Search for Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education. You also can follow us on Instagram at Hillsdale underscore K-12. Hillsdale underscore K-12 on Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education Podcast, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network more episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio.